Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm glad it did turn out that way and that young women get to see that you can get your point across, you can be eloquent, you can be intelligent and pointed, but sometimes we just deserve to just be mad. Hello and welcome to The World As It Should Be, a podcast in which we ask our guests to tell us what they would change to help create their perfect world. By listening to what they'd like to change, we'll hear more about who they are, what they do and what inspires them. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind Prima Donna, a uniquely anarchic and joyous festival of everything creative. My name is Shona Abianka and I'm a book publicist working with some of the most thought-provoking authors writing today. I'm Catherine Riley, a writer and director of the festival. We're delighted to be your guides on this podcast adventure. The world as it should be from Prima Donna. Kimberly Latrice Jones is an American author, activist and filmmaker. She's co-author of the New York Times best-selling YA novel, I'm Not Dying With You Tonight, and her latest book, How We Can Win, Race, History and Changing the Money Game That's Rigged, is published in January in the UK. How We Can Win is an expansion of a seven-minute video of Kimberly, filmed in Atlanta while she was helping clear up the streets following the murder of George Floyd at the hands of the police. In it, she uses a monopoly analogy to explain the history of racism and its impact on black Americans. The video went viral and the book is already making headlines both here and in the US where Kimberly lives with her son and where she's joining us from now. We're so happy to have you here, Kimberly. Thank you for being our guest on The World As It Should Be. Oh my goodness. I'm uh, so excited about doing this podcast. You guys are so much fun. <laughs> that is the nicest thing anyone has ever said to us. Congratulations on the book. How is it, how's it going? We, I've been listening to you on BBC and, and Sky News over here and all sorts of things happening. Yeah. How's it going? Yeah, so far so good. It seems to um, being very well received, which I'm excited about. You know, you're always nervous um, when you put a piece of art out in the world and open it up, open your baby up to criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, but thus far, it's been well received in which in the same way in which the video was. And with both, I was very nervous um, that it would um, startle people and that people would feel overwhelmed by it. But but so far, I think we are living in a time where people are trying to have these conversations. And so people People view it as a tool, and I'm grateful for that. It's so compelling that video, and one of the things that compels me most by it is your um, your eloquence in rage. Like that's such a skill. That's such an amazing. It's so it's it's so hard to watch and so difficult to turn your eyes away from. How did you do that? <laughs> You know, it was very organic and it just came out naturally. But now in retrospect, not even that I did it intentionally, but I'm so glad that it turned out that way because I think particularly to model for young women, um, women in general are told that our anger is um, not only not important, but that it should be subdued and that it lacks intellect um, and that it's not a showcase of power, but it's a showcase of weakness. And I don't think that that is true. I think you can be very much in touch with your emotions and your truth. And sometimes rage is what we feel and that it's okay for women to own that. We've been told for so long since the dawn of time that it's not okay for us to own that. And so I'm glad it did turn out that way and that young women get to see that you can get your point across, you can be eloquent, you can be intelligent and pointed, but sometimes we just deserve to just be mad. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And the Monopoly analogy is, I thought it was genius. 
how did you decide to expand on it by writing How We Can Win? Was that a kind of natural idea? Did it come straight after the speech or were you persuaded? Um, it was a natural idea because I think that <clears throat> I touched on a lot of points about moments in time and moments in history that people were unaware of. After my video went viral, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the Tulsa massacre was trending for the first time. And so people wanted more information. Um, I began to do this thing on my, my Instagram shortly after that. I did it for an entire year called Tuesday Task, where I would give people um you know, I would give them tasks, things they should research and things they should look up on their own and find the information on their own. But it was guided to say, hey, you probably don't know about this thing as well. And you should be looking into that. And so, again, I'm very grateful to be living in a time where people want to have these conversations. People want to buck the system and learn the true history of the world um, and how that's had an effect on them. And so I thought uh, utilizing the book to expand on those ideas for people to understand that Tulsa wasn't the only incident like that. But also when I'm talking about the Monopoly game that's rigged, that there's a lot more to that conversation um, than people realize there were, there were banking and infractions and housing infractions and many things that led to the economic disparagement, not just the black Americans, but my, you know, minorities in America across the board and, and giving people that information helps them to nurture empathy um, in these scenarios. That's a really good point. You, you said recently that, you, that this is the first time, the, the time we're in now is the first time we've seen trauma have a global impact can you say a bit more about that? Because th these are kind of the themes that you're talking about, I think. Yeah, I think there's a connectiveness um, around the world of injustice. And so even though <clears throat> the George Floyd incident was very specific to the U.S., I talked to many people in the U.K. After that, I talked to people in Australia and Belgium and South Africa and all these different places who had similar struggles and injustices that they were fighting on their own home front. And so they looked at what was happening um, in the U.S. as as a call to action mm -hmm. to say that, you know, I may not be able to get there and march with you guys, but I need to march here about things that have been swept under the rug here. And people were saying for the first time, hey, I live in a, I live in a nation where they don't like to have these conversations. And now we're busting the door open and telling them you're not going get away with that anymore. We have to have these conversations. And that's true of, you know, marginalized people, of queer people, of women um, across the globe who were saying, you know, thank, thank you for the kickoff. <laughs> um, mm, you know, yeah. thank you for the kickoff to inspire all of us to take to the streets. Yeah. yeah. You kind of answered my next question, which was the differences you've, you've experienced in the way people in the UK speak about the experiences of black people and other people in the margins and the US. I mean, we all have a reputation of stiff upper lip and, you know, being mm -hmm. sort of throwing it, sweeping everything under the carpet. Did you feel that you were opening something up there and that people were really willing to talk to you? They were. And I, I, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time in the past two years talking to people in the UK. And I think that's why, you know, I've talked to people who are in parliament and I've talked to everyday people and podcasters and bloggers and writers and all type of people in the UK who to, that's the universal message that I received from them is that they didn't feel comfortable even having these conversations prior to the civil unrest of 2020, that they felt like it was um, 
it was, you know, it was kind of a faux pas to even have these conversations. And this kind of like global revolution that happened, you know, kind of like cracked the egg on that. And people started having to address it. And a, a lot of times what they would say was that when they were participating in when they were participating in marches or or town halls or whatever they were participating in and people were saying well this this is a US problem and we should be in support and that they were saying no this is an us problem mm-hmm. we we also have this problem and need to have a conversation yeah that's definitely happening here in the UK there's mm-hmm. more and more kind of you know the UK the UK certainly our, our current government like to kind of spin the lie that we aren't built on the you know exploited wealth of slaves, for example, and um, and other subjugated peoples, which we absolutely are, because there's there's this kind of lie in history about us freeing, you know. Um, so yeah, it, it, you, all of that is now being laid out much more clearly, um, and your book is part of that kind of. Um, narrative which is yeah. an amazing amazing moment to be part of and the other thing is we live in the information age right so yeah. <clears throat> even even you know i'm a gen xer even in in my formative years I, we didn't have google <laughs> you know what i mean like we didn't have all of this <laughs> this access to information like we had the, we had the library and mm-hmm. so Whatever was written in the history books, which the you know the history books are usually writ- written by the victor of a scenario, um, yeah. that's the information that we had. Whatever was was taught in the school system, mm-hmm. that's the information that we have. That's not true anymore. Yeah. You know, that's that's the reason why I'm I'm sitting here in Atlanta and I'm having a conversation with someone in the UK, and my my video was seen by people all over the world because. Mm-hmm. With the information highway, it's very hard to keep things a secret anymore. Yeah. It's really hard to like cover things up. And so I hate to say it this way, but a lot of lies got unveiled. Yeah, yeah, mm. absolutely. I, I'm also Gen, Gen Xer. Whoops, Gen Xer. I think I'm the only one who isn't. <laughs> I was trying to write something this week about something that was set in 2005, which doesn't feel very long ago. It's like, mm-hmm. it is actually quite long ago now. And I was like, that was when Google wasn't, a, you know, a, a, a doing word. It was just that, that I was like, what, how did we find stuff out? And you're right. I was like, oh God, I think I had to go and read books in the yeah. library. I Even had to go then. and open an encyclopedia. I remember. <laughs> That's before 2005. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it is, it's a, it's a seismic shift, isn't it? Like you can just see stuff happening. You can see it live happening live, you know, and that, that is such exactly. an incredible difference. Mm. Yeah. So you mentioned libraries there, and I know that uh, growing up, libraries were really important to you. And the librarians you met who would scurry around the library getting information for you and <laughs> helping you find these books that you wanted, as well as teachers and general women in your life have had a real impact on you. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, my mother, she was she was an absolutely amazing woman. And one of the things that I credit to my mother was that she understood the importance of having other safe adults um, be in our lives, um, that beyond our parents, that it was super important to have other adults be invested in us um, who had things that they could pour into us. And so one of the things my mother used to do on Saturday morning um, when she would when she would go to the shops, instead of, you know, dragging us around and probably ruining her shopping experience with her, um, she would take us to the library and allow us to kind of run around the library, which now I'm like, those poor librarians, this woman's like dropping her <laughs> 
pissed off. I'm like leaving him to like be a menace to the library. Um, but there were amazing librarians. There's a, a, a library near my house where I grew up in Chicago called the Carter G. Woodson Library, which has one of the largest African-American studies um, collections um, in the country. And so the librarians would just load up a table of books um, and let me just like go through it and read and discover things, everything from picture books to middle grade books up into, you know, I was a very good reader. So, you know, adult books where I could learn all this history um, and information and even just like women in the neighborhood. I talk about in the book, a woman named Miss Deborah, who is my next door neighbor. And um, when I was in late elementary school and middle school, I would go to her house after school until my, my parents arrived home from work and this woman was just like a wealth of knowledge and she had all of these records and books that she would like and books on tape who remembers books on tape yeah. and like books on tape that she would you know that she would play with me play for me and educate me about things about my culture that wasn't being taught in school mm. and I was fascinated by that I was extremely fascinated and I went through my entire academic career without be- knowing that I was neurodivergent and that I had ADHD. I didn't get diagnosed until I was an adult, but I had a seventh and eighth grade teacher, Miss Carolyn Lumpkin, who I'm still, uh, still talk to. We're friends on Facebook. And she, I don't think she knew exactly what was going on with me, but she knew that I needed a different learning mm-hmm. style, um, which is all that happens with neurodivergent people, right? We just, our brains function in a different mm-hmm. way and we have to have a different learning style. And so part of what she would do when I would get anxious is because she knew I was like going to the library and hanging out with Miss Deborah and going to these after school programs. And I had all of this history in my head when I would get super anxious and busy and she would just look at me and go, Kimberly, do you have a lesson you want to teach? And I would say yes. And then she would give me 30 minutes of the floor and I would teach people about Percy L. Julian and like all these different things. And then once I got that energy out of my uh, system, I could yeah. sit down and focus. That's amazing wow. teaching, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. Isn't it? So it seems am, to be mainly women that were that had the real impact on you. Oh yeah, it was definitely just brilliant and amazing women in my life. Um, even just people as simple as like aunts and um, you know my mom's first cousins who I called aunts. They were just phenomenal women who had accomplished a lot despite having great odds stacked against them, and it was such an influence. I mean, and my mother was such a big influence on my life. She's an amazing woman. My mother was a, one of the leaders in AI. My mother programmed robots in the 1970s. Oh, yeah, and so, wow. she, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, she programmed robots that delivered the mail in the Sears Tower. And so, um, I feel like yeah. this is another book, Kimberly. <laughs> it is, it is. And I am working on it. I am definitely mm, working on it. Definitely. And, uh, yeah. And it's just like, I had these amazing women and there, and there were some, um, I, I will say in terms of male influence, probably the greatest um, besides my father was my, my father's brother, my uncle John, who was a tank repairman in the 761st tank battalion, which was the all, the first all black tank unit in world war two. And they were basically, people know about the, the story of the Tuskegee airmen and they were basically um, to the ground, what the Tuskegee airmen were to the air and their commanding officer was uh, Jackie Robinson uh, who, who integrated baseball and, I, it was interesting because I was I was um, I was with uh, Anita Lobel, the the famous illustrator, um, a famous Polish I- illustrator. I was at her house 
uh, years ago for an event in New York. And through a conversation she and I were, were uh, having, we discovered that my uncle's tank battalion uh, liberated her camp in Nazi Germany. No. And she and I had a good cry. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> she and I had a really you, good cry. Like that could easily, that conversation could easily not have happened. Had, had yeah, that- it was... It was so funny because we were, I was at her house and she's, she's drawing. So her husband was Arnold Lobel who, who created Frog and Toad. And, uh, and so we were at her house and she was drawing and she was talking to us and she started to talk to us about the one adult book that she had ever done, which was a memoir about, um, surviving the concentration, surviving the camps. And just kind of off the cuff, I said, you know, yeah, my uncle was, um, in a tank battalion that liberated some camps. Wow. And she said, she said, was it the 761st? And I said, yes, because they were the only black tank unit um, during the war. And she started to weep. And I just wanted to crawl up under the table. I was like, I started to apologize. I was like, oh my goodness, Miss LaBelle, I don't know what I have said to upset you. I like, I went flush. I was like, I don't know what I've said to upset you, but I apologize. And she's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. They came in because they knew if they sent in the blue-eyed blonde Americans, we would be skittish. We would think it was a trick. We would think it was the Germans. So the the black soldiers came in and we knew that they were the Americans and we felt safe going with them. Oh, that's making me really emotional now as well. Yeah. Unbelievable. And so we cried and cried and cried over our wine. And then uh, she gave me a piece of art that she had been working on. So now I have a, an original Anita Lobel. What a story. Wow. And material for at least two books. Oh, at least. <laughs> yes. Cool. Um, shall we move on to your manifesto for creating the world as it should be, which is what yes. we're all about? I'm really keen to hear what your plans are. So do you want to talk us through your first thing? So the first one that I said is I would make farming accessible to all people. And the reason why I say that is because one of the greatest insecurities that is having a global effect is food insecurity. And part of that is because the way in which humans as a whole has decided that they own land in a way that is is very new to humanity. Um, and so, you know, we, we all come from kind of like nomadic beginnings where you found land and if you learned how to cultivate it and you learned what grew on it, you would be able to feed yourself, uh, barring any obstruction from mother nature. And now with this idea that every inch and piece of land is profitized, it is made it so that we've created a world full of hungry people who don't have access to build and just grow and find a plot of land and cultivate it and figure it out and be able to feed themselves. And so, you know, I'm looking at a lot of what's happening with big business and part of it is, is, is running the small farmer out of business, if you will. And so mm-hmm. that scares me. And I feel like people always say, well, I want to tackle war hunger. Where to me, in my humble opinion, the way in which we could tackle war, world hunger is to make farming accessible to all people and to and to rethink about how we disseminate land and, and what land ownership looks like and the price point for land ownership. 
And what is the first thing you would do? I mean, it would have to be obviously small steps towards a bigger goal. What would you, if you had to do one? If I had to do one small thing to start the process, it would be teaching people how to farm. You know, we got away. We we Mm. redirected, especially in the Western world. We convinced everyone in the last 20 years that the only way to go in terms of education is to go to college, is to go to the universities. And it's like, that may not be the path for everybody. You know what I mean? And we have to be clear about that. And so what we've lost, we've really lost trademanship and the beauty that comes with trademanship, blacksmiths and electricians and carpenters and farmers and these types of trade that really allowed people across the board to earn a good living, to create businesses, um, to be able to provide healthily and happily, you know, for their families. And so I think we need to, I would say my first step would be return to, to even just educating people how to farm. Do you grow things? Do you, so over here in the in the UK, we have things like allotments. So there's kind of like municipal areas. Um, uh, there's kind of a rise of growing uh, a grow, <laughs> growing number. Very good joke I just made there of uh, <laughs> c- community gardens, stuff like that. Do you, are you in? Do you have a garden? Do you grow? Do you do you eat what you grow? I What's do. Uh, I do. I do have a gar- I do have a garden. I live I live in a, an apartment, so it's very small. But I just have some tomatoes um, that I'm growing out on the porch. But oddly enough, my ex, my son's father, is a farmer. Um, so he is a he is a goat- yeah he's a goat farmer. Um, is that what attracted you? <laughs> no, and you know what's so funny? He wasn't a farmer when I met him. He was a mechanic. You made him into a and farmer. Yeah. Fix my car for free. That's a double win, I would say. <laughs> Definitely a double win. Yeah. So that was my, that was that, uh, yeah. So I grow tomatoes, but he grows all kinds of stuff and has wow. all kinds of treatise. No, my, my grandmother oh. taught me again, another, another woman, amazing yeah. woman. I, wow. Yeah. My grandmother taught me, she, she grew up, my grandmother was born in 1914. And so she grew up in the twenties sharecropping. And then eventually when she retired from work, she moved out to rural Illinois and she wanted to go back to farming and she be, and she um, started growing corn and strawberries. And did she sell what she grew? She did. She sold, she sold what she grew. Also, my grandmother is another amazing story that I could tell because my grandmother was known as the horse lady um, because there we have this famous black rodeo in rural Illinois where she lives. And my grandmother, who was like 110 pounds soaking wet, was infamous for being able to break the wildest horses. So ranchers, wow. when they had a horse that they couldn't tame, they would bring them to her and she'd be like, leave, leave me with this horse for two weeks and I'll have it broken. Oh and she my would. God. This is crazy. This is unbelievable. I can't cope with all these incredible women that you're telling us about. This is another podcast, I think. That's so God, cool. Um, Everything about that story is just really yeah, cool. I like so that a lot. Amazing. <laughs> these women. Say, if you had the choice, would you live in the country? Like, would you have a farm if money was no object and you had the land? Oh, yeah, definitely. If money was no object and, and uh I had the land. I definitely would do it. And I, and I think in my later years, as I get closer to retirement, I think I will do like my grandmother and that's what I will do. And also because my, my, um, my older brother is kind of leaning in that direction too. He is missing being out on the land. So I think it's maybe something that he and I may do together in our later years is to, to just get a farm and put two houses on it, one for me and one for him and live on it. <laughs> yeah. We're going to come and stay. Yes, you're just, more yeah. than welcome. I can mow the lawn. I'm not very good at growing things, but I can mow the lawn. 
<laughs> we'll, we'll have farm hands. You guys can just like pick strawberries from the strawberry patch. Perfect. I love this plan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> should we move on to your second change? Um, yes. So my check, my second change would be to rewrite the history books. Um, and, and so that they are proper because I think that, um, you know, it's funny because we're having this conversation here in the States about CRT, about critical race theory, and whether or not it should be taught in schools. And I think that what the bottom line is, is that the history books were written to be palatable and almost in like a propaganda kind of way to make it, um, to, to convince us that we never did anything wrong and that everything was done with the right intentions and that everyone in history um, is someone to be admired and that, you know, they, it's impossible because they are our founding fathers that they could be flawed. Well, they were all very flawed. They were, you know, if, if you don't think of anything else, they're flawed because they were slave owners. You know what I mean? And so um, I think that it's time that we actually go back and, and gut that and look at the history. And especially because when you think about it from a global perspective, um, Hist a lot and lots and lots and lots of communities, well-developed communities, you know, um, they they passed on their history through 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 they were oral they were you know they they told oral histories and they passed it through generations like that and many of them did write things down but in the middle of wars things were bur burned and destroyed and so all you did have was the oral history that people passed along and so i think with and i think this is true of each country right they try to they try to write themselves the victor they try to write themselves absolutely the, yeah, yeah they absolutely. write themselves the good guy in in every way and it's like well you weren't always the good guy and like your version of this story is not the real version and like now that, now that everyone knows the real version why are we still teaching children the version that we know to not be true? Like we're mm. still teaching children here in the States that Columbus discovered America. How can you discover something with people already there? <laughs> it's a very, very simple question that even kids at elementary school would, would ask because yeah. it's so self-evidently true. I can't show up at Shona's house and be like, I discovered this house. <laughs> she let you she's very gentle you're lying i have discovered this house best of luck to you i'm moving in my things um, <laughs> she'll, she'll just go off with a little napkin tied on a stick exactly i would actually be like kimberly come in yes okay whatever you say i'll start planting stuff in the background it'll be fine we'll we'll get along we'll rub along famously just grow some tomatoes yeah. and be quiet yeah <laughs> this do you what what is the reason do you think why why are schools still teaching things that we know now if you if you dig well, deeper I think, they're not first true. of all the textbooks that we have have not really been updated with other than like slight changes since the 50s good grief um and so it's just much easier to just keep printing them it's true they it's are crazy. and yeah. just like make a few minor adjustments here and there add in a dr martin luther king section and add in something modern, like what's, you know, the civil unrest of 2020 will probably be in textbooks <laughs> next year as a small passage. And it's like, meanwhile, Columbus still discovered America. George Washington had wooden teeth, which was not true, you know? And so it's just, it's, 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 it's like, it's like intellectual laziness. But why would anyone say he had wooden teeth? I don't get yeah, the wooden th teeth thing. This is what they taught me in school, that George Washington had wooden teeth. And then I discovered later that that was not true. He did not have wooden teeth. I don't even know why that's something you would teach. I'm like, why did you tell me this man had wooden teeth and he didn't? 
<laughs> it's really true. I was looking, I was with my uh, goddaughter this weekend who is 12 and she was showing me her, so I said, how was your week? And because she, she's 12, she has no memory of <laughs> any of it. So she went to get her timetable that was on the fridge. And so she was like, this is what I did on this day and this day. And her timetable, school timetable looked exactly like mine. Like she's teaching, being taught the same subjects like mm. computing or, and it's like, her, it's crazy that she's learning the same stuff that I learned because the world doesn't look exactly. like that anymore. So apart from apart from mm-hmm. us knowing that these stories are demonstrably false and damaging and a lie and insidious, it doesn't help the next generation because th- it's not just history. It's like all of these subjects have moved on. To, you know, mm-hmm. women didn't wor- apparently didn't write novels until you know the early eighteenth. Jane Austen arrived, and that's just a complete and utter lie. Yeah. So why is this happening? why it's because because we're not in charge they need to put the ladies in charge if they Mm. want to get this stuff done we have been saying this for such a long time Kimberly yeah it's the whole weekend. That's it. Imagine if I was in charge of the textbook system, which is all rooted in Texas in, in, in the States. It's like, if they put me in charge of just that, of just textbooks, right. I would get it all together. I would get a whole team of like, accomplished historians we would comb through those books we would weed out the lies we would add in the truths we would make it so it was easily teachable we would get it done we'd press up all these new textbooks get them out into the world and like properly educate our children so we're not sending them out in the world saying things like george washington had wooden teeth (laughs) so i I'm really miffed about that one. <laughs> so in America, anyone listening in the US, she, Kimberly is available for this work. I also want to advocate anybody in the UK looking for that. We, we need it too. So, and she, I'm pretty sure she can get the shit done wherever. So yeah, kids will be begging to go to school yeah, make, and make it interesting. So it's like, why, why, when did we decide that school just had to be like a child stuck in a seat for eight hours? And I'm just like, at what point do we recognize that maybe it's time to like figure out a different way to educate kids, to mix in some movement? I feel like Montessori has been doing a better job than most systems for a very long time. Like, let's look at why those kids, mm. Montessori kids, seem very advanced to the rest of us and like what it is that they're doing. And also they're socialized into being adults because they're socialized into listening and reasoning and, you know, learning by row, it isn't it's no way to kind of prepare you for real actually, life actually yeah. that reminds me of like when you're mo- when you were talking about your mother not only did she sound like a very clever woman but she did kind of instill in you I think a confidence to talk mm-hmm. to people about difficult subjects yeah. I mean you must have been speaking to people from an early age about things they didn't really want to hear or questioning things all the time yeah <laughs> I would definitely <laughs> applaud your mum for some of that because she did in- a lot of parents will want their children to be quiet and sit quietly and not talk to adults and not engage in conversation about difficult topics. But I do think, I wonder whether you would be doing what you're doing now if you hadn't had that experience when you were younger. I don't think so. I don't think that I would have, I mean, because, you know, I enjoy what I do and I'm passionate about it. But it's also a scary undertaking. Mm. You know, not everyone in the world loves me. Um, not everyone sees value in my messages. And so, you you know, I have to do it sometimes. I tell, I tell people this amazing story about um, Whitney Houston. 
One of my first jobs in Hollywood, I was an assistant, a development assistant on the show Being Bobby Brown, the Bobby and Whitney Mm -hmm. reality show. And this was at the height of the world being completely awful to Whitney and the press just, you know, the paparazzi just being horrific to her. And I remember one time there was a newspaper. This is how I'll tell you how long ago the newspaper, 2005, was a newspaper um, (laughs) that, um, that had written this beautiful glowing article about her, about how she was the voice of a generation. And I didn't get to see her often. um, But this one particular day, I knew that she was going to be coming into the office. And so I had this newspaper on my desk and I was ready. I was like waiting the moment she walked through that door, I was going to take my opportunity to like hand her this newspaper with this amazing article that was written about her. And I remember she walked in the door and and, in true Whitney fashion, looking like an entire regal, you know, a person and I ran up to her. I almost knocked her down. I ran up to her so fast. And I was, I was like, Miss Houston, Miss Houston, Miss Houston, you have to read this article. It's absolutely amazing. And she goes, no, thanks. And I said, no, no, no. It's, it's like glowing. It's talking about how you're the voice of a generation. And, you know, I was like rambling all the talking points in this Mm. article. And she looked at me and she said, I appreciate it, my love, but no thanks. Because if I believe them when they tell me I'm great, I'll also have to believe them when they tell me I'm bad. So I don't read any of it. Wow. And so... And so I've, I've, I, that lesson, that, that amazing lesson that I got from her, I, I lean into that and I do this work with confidence, um, because of what my mother instilled in me, but I also block out the noise so that it doesn't affect me. That's brilliant advice. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. From the most amazing woman. That's just incredible. That's another amazing story. I mean, that's another book. I just can't. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Can't cope with how many books you want to be writing over the next few years, and and the entire school curriculum. It's a busy time coming up. Exactly. Mm. Well, we will help you with that with that big job deal because that's a big job. And so my last one is uh, healthcare. It should not be so expensive to be sick, even in even in nations that have socialized healthcare. Um, because I know that we have one of the worst systems here, but even in nations that have socialized healthcare, to me, just the thought that if you get cancer, that it could bankrupt you. And it's like, do people not recognize how scary that is? The amount of people, especially as we're looking at what has transpired during this pandemic, um, the amount of people who died in their homes to COVID because they have anxiety about going to the hospital and acquiring some huge bill. Mm. It's crazy. The American healthcare system to, to us, it just seems, I mean, we have issues we're with so our lucky. Yeah. I mean, we're so lucky to have the national health service and we, we've never been more grateful for it than, than we are, you know, post in the middle still of the pandemic. And, but yeah, we still have issues here with it being devalued and the government, you know, under investment and under appreciation and it being used as a political tool and all of those kind of things. And it, as you say, good health is, is a lottery, pure and simple. So it, it can't be fair that you are, you know, you either ride out your luck or, as you say, it can destroy it can destroy lives, can't it? Families, 
when you have to pay and then the other thing is is like we don't we also don't have systems in place for preventative care right so Mm -hmm. it's like even people who have great health care they have reactionary great health care they have now that you have diabetes we can treat you now that you have high blood pressure we can treat you. And, and these are, these are food-based diseases, right? And so, I mean, there is, there is some systems of heredity with some of these, but a lot, a lot of the diseases that we have are due to poor gut, you know, gut health and things like that. And so it's like, to think that things like mental health care, eye care, dental care, and and preventative care, which is the big one, preventative care is not something that's part of the package. is very scary to me, and it's just like sometimes I want I I try to stay in a childlike state, right? So I'm I'm a very goofy, silly girl, and people are like, "How is it possible that you're doing this work?" Especially people who know me are like, "How are you doing this work when you are basically a circus clown? You're so ridiculous, right?" <laughs> and so. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that I, the reason that I do that is because I, I try to stay in tune with my inner child because I feel like as we get older, our humanity gets nicked away. Mm. And so it's like, you know, the idea that people are in the, the people here in the States have such a high price point that the marginalized and the poor can't get health care. Also, the idea that there are countries where due to big pharma and all of the money that is made on medicine and things like that, that you have these smaller nations that can't even get medicine in. Mm -hmm. It's like we all need to be more childlike because that needs to break your heart. That needs to make you Mm. cry. That needs to make you sad. You need to have like... A, a three-year-old childlike cry when you hear that someone doesn't have access to proper health care. It should hurt you that bad. Mm. Do you think this will happen in our lifetimes? Do you think change is coming? I do think that change is coming, but I think change... <sighs> with the people that we have now, I think it's going to come in small increments. I think that there is no point in being hopeless. Mm. Nothing will get done with hopelessness because hopelessness is a red light. It is a stop. If you don't have hope and if you don't believe that change can come, then what are we doing? Yeah. What are any of us doing? And so I don't, I don't want to, I have days where I have a yellow light where I'm like, well, I'm going to slow down because I'm not so sure, but I try to never have red days. And I always try to have, I try to have as many green days as I can, because I want to remind myself of where we have all come from. And I know, you know, it's very common to say the more things change, the more they stay the same. And there is some truth to that. But I think if we're looking at it realistically, it is a disservice to our ancestors to not acknowledge the work that they did to get us where we are. Now, do we have a long way to go? Yes, we have a long way to go. Do we have still a lot of big fights? Yes, we still have a lot of big fights. But I, I, I think about it in this really like morbid, creepy way. It's like, dig up a woman from 1855 and show her your life. And she will know that if she worked towards women's liberation, 
that she did that her work was not in vain. Dig up a woman who died in 1945. Dig up a woman who died in 1975 mm-hmm. and let her see women on the airwaves in the way in which we are right now. She will know that she didn't die in vain. So I think that there is a way to both simultaneously honor the work that our ancestors did and use that as hope to know that in 20, 30 years, Things can look different. They may not look perfect, but they can look different. They can look better. I think that utilizing that helps us to keep going because if any of us, any of us come, become completely hopeless, then the whole thing will crash. I love what you said about not being hopeless because what I also loved was the choice of your book title of how we can win when yeah. the speech was very much how can we win i do yeah. feel like it's a very hopeful positive message that here's some things we can do yes because i i think i think you know i think we forget that the people have power that the people are the power that we have to stop looking at um these government figureheads who really their job is supposed to be our representative of our Mm. voice. And so we have to stop looking at them like, well, they just control everything. So all hope is lost and it just is what it is. And it's like, no, you have power. If they suck, let's get them out of office. Mm. Mm. If they are absolutely terrible, let's get rid of them. If they are Mm. writing poor policies, let's fight back against Mm. those policies. You know, um, there was just a study that was put out by Harvard that shows the impact that protesting has on the world and that it does have a, a, impact. You know, particularly here in Georgia, one of the cases where I feel like is a high showcase of that is the Ahmad Arbery case. That people don't people forget that case was closed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was done. They deemed it a fair murder. That DA had shut it down. It was over. And the people took to the streets and people came from all over the state of Georgia down to Brunswick to say, no, the the as the kids say, I learned this on TikTok, the kids say this, the math ain't mathin'. So <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And so see, people fought back and the case was reopened and look at the result. Yeah. 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 I think that we, we've got some shenanigans going on with our government here at the moment and everyone's kind of tearing their hair out. But it's like you voted them in, you can vote them straight back out again next time. It's not that yeah. difficult. Well, I've said before on a different podcast that, you know, I feel like politics is one of the only jobs you can do where you do a really shit job and you don't do what you promised to do, but yeah. you don't lose your job. Yeah. I, just mind-blowing. Yeah, and you know what the people have to recognize that their vote is? the vote. Your vote is your employee review. These people yeah. are in our employ. Yeah. They work for us. We don't work for them. <laughs> they work for us. And so every time an election comes around, if you stop looking at it as an election and you start looking at it as an employee review. I love that. Love it. <laughs> like that's a t-shirt or something. Yes. And then you treated it as such. A lot of these people who really suck would get out yes. of office. You have failed your probation. You're fired. Your probationary period was your term. You (laughs) failed it. You fired. We're looking at other applicants. Okay, (laughs) applicants, debate. Let's see who's going to get the job. Thank you, next. (laughs) Love it. Amazing. Speaking of next, what's next for you? What are you up to next? So I have lots of exciting things going. Um, I am writing another book for Henry Hote, um, which is my mother's biography. Um, Yay! So, yes. So I'm in the midst of working on that book. And then through my organization, um, TPU, we have an amazing program that we are working on called The Root. 
during our last mayoral election, a lot of the conversation was around around the growth in crime in our city. And when we actually looked at the, the crime, what we noticed that a lot of the crimes were being committed by younger people, by people, you know, teenagers and, and people in their 20s. And so we thought, what is the root problem? You know what I mean? And so we figured out that the root problem is they don't have access to education, jobs, um, you know, the a lot of the kids who are committing these kind of, you know, like um, car break-ins and, and things like that. And so we're like, the root is that they don't have access to other ways to making money. They're in marginalized communities and they don't see a through line or an out or a plan. And so we are working with the city right now to put together a paid internship program um, where we can put these kids to work, we can assign them with mentors, and we can get them back on track. Because I don't think the answer, because we have such a bloated uh, prison system here in the U.S., I don't think the answer is to take 16-year-olds and put them into a juvenile detention center where they're only going to learn more bad habits and then have these things on their record that's going to prevent them from then going to college and going to trade school Mm. and getting a job. It's like, how can we work with the system to do a redirect on kids who, who just need some guidance. And so that's our program, the route that we're rolling out this year. And we're very excited about it. That's fantastic. Wow. Yeah. We're very lucky to have you in the world. Thank you for all your amazing work. And thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. It's been a pleasure. No, it's it's, you guys are the best. I'll come back anytime. (laughs) Please do. Please try and come to the festival in July. Yeah, we'll see you in the summer in Suffolk. Show you around. I will. I'm on my way. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much, Kimberly. The world as it should be from Prima Donna. as it should be from Prima Donna.